0: I'm Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host. and each episode, we interview a city or a county leader who's in a position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government here in the Sunshine State. Today, we have with us the un- Manager Jamie Titcomb from the Un City Loxahatchee Groves. All right, Jamie, you're gonna have to walk us through this. What is an unmanager? Manager?
1: Uh, can we start with the uncity? It's a yeah. Let's start wherever you want. We go by uh, a town, so it's there's towns, villages, and cities. By the way,
0: anybody who's listening, if you're expecting this to be a typical, normal podcast, you just you just skip forward to the Hidden Brain or Malcolm Gladwell, whatever your other podcasts are, because it could be a little different. I can already tell he's giving me wise ass looks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I think I hit the table already. Um, anyway, we're at, we're at the Tannalaxachi Groves, uh, about nine thousand acres, just under fourteen square miles with 3,500 population. And by zoning, our smallest legal lot is five acres for a residential um, agricultural-oriented zoning and land use, Uh, meaning that we have lots and lots of agricultural equestrian and and mom-and-pop farm... uh, You're
0: just south of Wellington, which is notorious for its farm community. Just
1: north of Wellington. Just north of it, yeah. Um, Some consider us their back lot, but uh, we... (laughs) Uh, Wellington has its brand and is very proudful of that, and we have ours, and and we don't want to be each other, but we're very, very reliant upon each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes we joke the Wellington billionaires have kicked out the millionaires and they've come over to roost in Loxacee Groves. Um, We have uh, 56 miles of dirt roads and canals, which are built on a 100-year-old water control system. And only incorporated as a town in 2006, but it took to 2018 for the Independent Water Control District and the town government to merge into one. So in government years, which are like dog years, we're kind of a toddler of towns and we're in our tantruming twos as we
0: Tantruming twos. Find we're what we a want bit. to be. Well,
1: it's funny because
0: you know, we talk a lot about what is a city, what is a municipality, and especially in Florida, the diversity you know, we don't have uh, the categories of villages, towns, cities. We have only municipalities, cities. So, 411 now on our way, 412, I guess, with Westlake uh, near you recently being formed by the legislature. But you're you're a very atypical city. You don't have an urban core. You don't have, I mean, you do, right, to the east, West Palm, uh, and, you know, the surrounding areas. To the areas. east,
1: we have Royal Palm Beach and West Palm Beach and all the other um, uh, suburban-tier cities. Of course, Wellington to the south, the new city of Westlake to the north that's just popping up out of the ground.
0: But you guys look like a rural farming community.
1: Uh, very much so. We, are, If you look at a map of us, we're a big green block in the middle of an urbanized county. Um, and so that has become um, not only our our brand that we protect and promote uh, very vigorously, but it's been our history, too, because it's always traditionally been an area where other things go on that aren't typical to the urban suburban tiers that most people are used to. And even our charter itself uh, celebrates the agricultural equestrian um, uh, amenities and, and um uh, uh, aesthetics of of where we are and what we do.
0: So being in a large, fast-growing urban county, are there special pressures on you to change and to let up on some of those restrictive uh, zoning ordinances?
1: Absolutely. Um, I, I call it and may have referred to it as holding the castle gates. Um, we are a very good deal. Uh, we're seeing valuation of our real estate um, move at a much quicker rate than surrounding communities Uh, Much because it's still virgin or raw land, but also because people tend to look at green farmland, agricultural areas and go, hmm, that might make a great development or a commercial plaza or this or that because, look, there's nothing to do except start building. Uh, But the mindset of the community and the citizens is very significant as to wanting to be and remain agricultural, equestrian, and natural rural area aesthetic uh, over everything else. Uh, we do have a commercial corridor. It's along Southern Boulevard. And we have Okeechobee Boulevard, which is a county road that bifurcates mm-hmm. the town. And there's a lot of talk about overlays and what what would be a good, suitable use for that corridor. But we're we're fighting the ever-never-ending tug-of-war over traffic numbers, densities, uh, cut-throughs, um, growth and commercialization versus trying to keep that... That rural, equestrian, agricultural. Um, unusual I, I got to
0: imagine the properties that are adjacent to fast-growing urban areas. Uh, you know, in your city, the out, you know, the perimeter count, uh, the perimeter properties are regularly being called by a developer or somebody wanting to purchase their five-acre, ten-acre parcel so they can build something on it eventually. Uh, But that's got to be where the front lines of this Castlegate mentality comes in.
1: I get contacted, I would say, easily multiple times a day with uh, what I call tire-kicking calls, uh, either directed to me by local realtors or by deep-pocketed investors or people uh, even in the immediate area that just see this big empty space and go, hmm, I would like to do that over there. I could
0: build a Meisner Park could, there.
1: Yeah, what could I do? Can I come and see you? Can you show me how I can get around your rules, regulations, zoning, and applications so that we can do what we want to do there? And I usually inform them, find out what the community wants. Come find out what they need. And then Go get maybe- me the broom of the Wicked Witch, then come back and we'll talk. It's funny, I use that, I use that analogy often um, of, you know, bring me the broom. Because, yeah,
0: bring me the broom because we ain't doing it uh, for not from city hall. We're not going to do that because we'll all get fired.
1: And I get people that tell me, you know, it says right in your your code that you can approve this, that, or the other thing administratively. And I go, yes, I have that power, but you can be sure I'm not going to use it because if it's sensitive, as if it's political, if it goes against the mindset of what the community is looking for, then just because I can sign off on something, I'm not inclined to. Um, there's process for that, and there's. Communication and there's dialogue that gets everybody to the place they need to be. Well,
0: oh, that's that's interesting, yeah. Because you you signed that, they'd be like, "Well, we're going to take you to lunch because we want your last day here to be a happy one." Uh, as you as you sell off some of the, some of the perimeter properties, it is interesting because we watched how um, Coconut Creek in Broward County went on a land buying spray to kind of protect the quasi rural ish nature of Coconut Creek. And a lot of people were like, no, you can sell that land, you could develop it, you could put a Lowe's, you could put a Home Depot, you can widen a road, and that would generate tax, obviously not widening road, but selling to developers, generate tax revenue. What they found by protecting and preserving that land was that the other land became more valuable, and it was a net increase by protecting some of that property. I guess you guys are realizing that in spades right now.
1: Uh, absolutely, it's 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 ageless that phenomenon you're talking about. In fact, um, kind of going back to earlier things you asked me, which was being the unmanager and how did I get here? I actually started in government in elected office in the city of Boynton Beach, and that was one of the conversations I had with a very large landowner at the time in Boynton Beach who owned scores and scores, I guess hundreds of acres um, under their family name, and they had rent to cows. You know, the kind that show up on the bus for their lunchbox and get on the property for the day and call it agricultural and right, then right, right. leave on the bus at the end of the day because uh, there's tax exemptions and implications, and it's a it's a holding pattern for big-time development. Yeah,
0: you can have 100 acres, put two cows on it, and you and get a $500 a year as your property taxes. Yep,
1: and and you're an agricultural interest. Um, so I I spoke to this gentleman at the time, and I'm like, you know, a real family name legacy would be to give this huge swath of land to a central park-like setting for this city it needs one needs recreational space needs one in the middle you had congress avenue with a major commercial yeah. corridor running up aside it and to your point if you do something like that the land around it becomes exponentially more valuable very quickly because of the amenity and because of that synergy between the open space, the recreational amenities, the the beauty aesthetic, and then the development rights that can go with that. So did he? No. <laughs> you made the pitch, but it didn't work. It didn't work, and I realized because that would benefit others, probably not them. But that unless that they own probably, the adjacent land, um, yeah, unless they own that as well. Uh, that piece of property is now what's known as Quantum Park and the Renaissance Commons, and it, it's more uh, residential units and stores and square footage than you could ever throw throw a stick at, and I'm sure they did very well. Um, but, you know, all through my, my kind of political career, for lack of a better term, I've always uh, tried to bring some alternative uh, perspectives and looks into the situation, which is how is that working out for you? And if that's not working out well, um, why don't you consider this or try this? And even if I know that the suggestion isn't going to get somebody to that place, if I can dislodge for a few moments, you know, an alternative thought about, well, yeah, what if we did this, or what if we tried this, or what if we went a different route? Um, even if you don't get there, ultimately, I think you get a better product at the end in terms of what you bring to the community, what you bring in terms of a solution to the problem.
0: Well, let's let's go back. I want to talk about the unmanager because, and I find this interesting because we're going to get into core values and then these little distractions and marketing. But your background and, and what we find a lot with city managers doing this podcast is ironically, most of them don't come up. What I would have thought would be in a normal, typical route of a uh, bachelor's degree in political science, a master's degree in public administration, starting as an assistant to the assistant manager, um, uh, and that kind of job. But yours is unique. You started in marketing.
1: Uh, tri- even, even more so, I started as a protege artist and went to a very famous art school and got a degree in industrial design nothing to do with, um, <laughs> uh, from Pratt Institute in New York, and I was very proud of that, and I worked in that field for almost 20 years. Um, but what I've told my students, my charges that I work with, my employees that I work with, uh, anybody, it almost doesn't matter which path you take because at the end of the day, there are certain core things you have to bring uh, to the equation, which is principle and um, a, a resolution into what you're doing and how you're doing it, um, an ability to look at the bigger picture and look an ability to look at both sides of what you have to deal with and empathize to the points of view that are um, different than your own and really weigh all this stuff out and bring it. And you're ultimately a decision maker where your decision affects everybody around you. So I would tell students often, you know, whatever degree you're getting, history, literature you know, public administration, mm-hmm. whatever, that's great. Just just pursue that, get that degree. What you're going to find is when you get into your career path, you might take very different twists and turns that resemble very little what you thought you were going to do when you got a particular degree. Well, you know,
0: that's, that's so been lost. We now treat college, f- a four-year degree, as a vocational degree, expecting a 17-year-old, 18-year-old to know what that path is going to be. I think that's good counsel. Follow your heart. Do what you love, but become good at it, have core values, and it may take you. I mean, my bachelor's is in, I started in chemistry, uh, biology, then moved over to business, uh, then market research, uh, very different areas. And now I'm, I'm doing podcasts for a living. Well, <laughs> um, and
1: being like, uh, in my own story, being a, a protege artist took me to a place where when I got to college, I was like, I, I kind of already have that skill set and that talent. I'd like to learn something new. I'm here to learn so something So you went to the opposite of the spectrum, so, right? Yeah, that took me into industrial design. And then when I got out, I'm like, well, really don't want to work for GM designing door panels or anything like that. So I gravitated back to more of the creative aesthetic and spent more time in advertising and marketing and high-end custom collateral for business-to-business marketing and development. Mm-hmm. So that brought me into a into a place where, on a regular basis, now I'm exposed to all kinds of clients, businesses, uh, entities, nonprofits, governance organizations, and. The equation's always the same. What are the problems? What are the challenges? What are the needs? What are the resources that can be allocated to resolve these things? And then coming to a meeting of the minds with the client, the agency, the organization and getting them the right answers and the right amount of oomph or leverage that you could put into mm-hmm. their, their outcomes with what you had to work with.
0: But your broad spectrum of your education gave you a lot of new tools to draw from in making decisions in, in the marketing world.
1: I Abso- mean, absolutely. And, you know, government was the last thing on my radar. Absolutely. I, I was drafted into running for office, and it really started with being communicative and outspoken and just calling things out when you saw them. Or Give me an example of one of the things you called out. Um, I. I remember sitting in a city commission meeting. Um, now,
0: why were you at a city commission meeting? Uh,
1: I was I was involved in everything and anything. I, I chaired school committees. I sat on nonprofit okay. boards. I was on the Chamber of Commerce. In fact, I was the chair-elect of the Chamber of Commerce in Boynton, where I served on the elected body, um, and gave that up in order to serve as an elected official. And uh, I was just... My strategy in my private business world was, if I can't sell it, give it away, and if I'm going to do good work, I'm going to do award-winning work, and I'm going to get my name out there, and I'm going to – whenever I'm not spending time on doing what I have to do and what's important to me, I'm going to give back the rest to the community because I know that's going to be like karma. It's going to be good. It's going to – help the community, and it's going to come back to me in positive ways. And that, that occurred. Very nice. Um,
0: so what was the thing you were, you were so calling I'm,
1: out? I'm sitting in a in a commission meeting, and I think I had just recently been appointed to the Planning and Zoning Board at the time, kind of my first foray into any official uh, appointment or board. And they're arguing about the condition of medians in the community and the neighborhood that I lived in. And my next-door neighbor is like, we really need... Um, curbs around these because people are driving over them they're breaking these sprinkler pipes they're doing this they're doing that and um, I'm talking with them and I'm articulating some of the things back to them that they're saying to me and I'm like well you know it's it's public audience time get up there and you know say something about this problem and, and how we want this fixed and they go you need to do that you tell get up there and tell them what you just told me. just just get up there and tell them <laughs> kind of it was kind of like where you 're standing, and everybody yeah. else steps backwards, yeah, 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 <laughs> one step and you 're like oh, uh, it's okay, me. it's me, <laughs> so it really kind of gravitated that naturally and amorphically into just, okay, I guess I have the gift of gab i 'm going to get up and." Uh, speak to some of these issues that are concerning myself, my neighbors, others. Isn't isn't it cool
0: that a lot of people who are in positions of public service really started uh some they were gonna close a park or there was excessive flooding in a park where children were playing and they came to the the DS and spoke. That so one of the things we're ta- we've been talking about that's used to be the origin story for a lot of city commissioners, right? A lot of people who serve, city managers, a lot of people got into government was, I saw a problem in my community, a physical problem or a social problem, and I stepped up. Now what you're getting, and I'm seeing this, is people coming, watching cable news, getting active on social media, and... The more extreme you are on those platforms and the more out of sync with the mainstream you are on those platforms, the more recognition and notoriety you get. We're starting to see a lot of people get elected to commissions around the state who come from the world of TikTok and Instagram and, you know, I use the uh, the Bill Belichick, you know, the book face and snap face. Uh, but from the world of social media, not from people who are there because there's a... I don't want to say unlegitimate, but uh, uh, problems like sewers, curbs at medians, uh, parks being closed, now they're more interested in. Uh, you know, rabble-rousing and and a little bit of that. Are you seeing a little bit of that? Not necessarily on your own, but because you're involved with the League of Cities, you're involved with FCCMA, you're involved with these associations. Are you seeing more of that, or is that just me?
1: No, you're absolutely spot on, and it's even occurring at the state legislative level and congressional levels, for that matter. I mean, at every level, level of government, you have people that are... Uh, how do I say this, somewhat one-dimensional in where they want to be and what they want to get done and how they want to get there. And they're using going viral on social media or affinity to groups that agree with them or what have you to position themselves to get there. And they're missing so much more. And what they're missing and what the whole community or society is missing in my opinion right now is is a centrist mentality to understanding that good decisions are made in the middle through compromise through collaboration through um, taking into consideration all points all of view, points of view. even even extreme points of view even but, extreme.
0: and saying okay sir we can we can respect your opinion but i've got to bring this in because i've got to manage to 80 90% of the population uh, when you see people like Laura Luna Who take very extreme positions on things Running for office And with the, and, and many times because of s- certain dynamics of the electoral process Getting elected to those those positions Or simply because the two people running are both extremists One from the far left, one from the far right And they end up getting elected And they're like, okay, now go run the company uh, Also known as the country, right? Go run this thing And that's not why they came and I, I worry for local government because it's one of the last vestiges of things that actually work. And part of that is the electoral process. You have to, everybody gets to vote on you, not just in extreme, you know, closed primaries. Um, but you're starting to see more and more people come into the process, not because they want to make government work better, because they want to be heard on their extreme positions more.
1: Absolutely. And I uh, unfortunately see that permeating or trickling down from national level polarization of politics all the way to the local level and and it's deteriorated over time but the problem we all have the same access right now to information to facts to um, uh, critical things that might be parts of the decision-making process that we need to have in order to make them Um, but everybody isn't at equal standing, if you will. One of the things that professional managers and professional people in the industry bring to the table is a sense of wisdom, a sense of experience, having been there, having weighed out some of these kinds of extreme uh, presentations towards a solution in the past and uh, worked with people professionally and through process uh, in, a, in a procedural way to get to the sifting down of the appropriate decision, staying the course, doing few th- doing fewer things, doing them better rather than being distracted by every shiny object, every late-breaking uh, tweeted headline rather than um, – how popular does the, does this information make me in making this decision? No, how many likes well, on TikTok do you get? How many
0: views <laughs> on this and that do you get? You've got to keep the wheels turning, and you've got to keep the lights running, and you've got to keep that water out of the street. And So let's, let's talk about is, is, that because it, it's one of your things about core values and staying to the core principles, the core values. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Uh, I'll, I'll just segue um, into that in a second after I make the point that to me, in my analytical mind, and what I bring to the table, everything is a math equation. You know, you have so many resources, you have so, so, such severity, such degree of um, you know, challenge or problem. You have so many mouths to feed, or, or hands right. to spread it amongst, and only whatever. so many hours in every day. Right, and so many hours in every day. It's, it's, it always boils down to what can you do in a metered approach to what needs to be done, and that people in your community agree. Uh, to do with those with those available resources and it's amazing how much debate and dissension goes on about those very simple kinds of facts math is math and you can get there if you can agree on what the math looks like so well isn't that way- part of
0: the problem though with social media is that we don't start the game you say we all have access to the same information but we don't get that same information, right? So if you're an extremist on the far left or the far right, or just some out of the mainstream, not on the left, right spectrum, you're being fed misinformation. And it goes back to that. It's, we can come to a conclusion if we start with the same set of facts, but now nobody's, very few people are starting with the same set of facts. So we come to the table with misinformation or purposeful disinformation,
1: you know the expression, you're entitled to your opinion, you're not entitled to your own facts. Well, that,
0: that's no longer so,
1: applicable, right? You actually are, right? Because people come right. to the table with their own sets of facts. Uh, they do and and I don't think that'll ever change. Um, it's You know, I spend a good part of my time, all the time, um, deflecting the concept that if I have five factoids correct, then therefore the conclusion is this. And that's not the case. Um, Everybody does have their own paradigm when it comes to facts. And, um, you know, whether that's factual or not is is perception in, in the eye of the beholder. What we do have to do is we have to agree on what the fact sets are going to be, and we have to agree on the pol- uh, on the process in order to get there. And this is kind of where we segue into the the, the compass, the, the the ethics, the. Um, mission, if you will, that we have, whether I'm a a paid hired gun as a professional manager or you're an elected official Mm -hmm. serving the needs of your community or some other role in the organization, you have a role to play, it's pretty well defined, and it should stay within certain parameters so that not only can you be accountable and fiduciarily accountable in what you're doing for a community, but... People can check and cross-check what you're doing and how you're doing it, and you can report back to the process, here's what you said you wanted, here's what we have to work with, here are the options that we can apply to resolve these issues. So your
0: first step is get everybody on the same set of facts,
1: because Uh, if you can't get them there... Same set of rules, let's say. Well,
0: both, right. So the facts... Facts and the rules. But the rules of engagement.
1: Okay. Now, um, before we started, we were talking a little bit about you know ethics and in in the world of governance, um, we're all required to take annual courses by the state legislature. Mm-hmm. we at the county level. We're required to take ethical um, uh, trainings and courses on an annual basis. Um, every industry has its own set of regulatory and and or ethical and um, uh, situational training that goes with that, and you know it's really really important to me from my perspective that if i do nothing else i bring that core ethical approach to everything i do to the table to the day to the to the location every day um, what i like about that when you've talked about
0: that before i envision like this this weight holding you down right so that the winds don't blow you around uh, and when you talk about a, an ethical compass, and it's like an, it's like something that guides you through the tough seas, through the tough waters, through the difficult decisions. Say, what's my ethical approach here? So I'm not jerked around left and right trying to get something else done.
1: Yeah, and it's. it's- um, we're talking about it, but it's much more subtle than that when you're applying it in real everyday life because obviously every, every day can change on a phone call. You walk into the office with a to-do list in your brain and the first phone call changes your entire day. Of course. Um, things happen. Uh, I, I remember a time when we were getting dinged on a, uh, uh, an inspector general audit for not being able to prove that we had potable water pipes under our streets. Uh, and it was based on some erroneous assumptions. Here we
0: go. The basic facts were wrong.
1: <laughs> the basic factual information was, was not applied correctly. And a few weeks later, fast forward, we had a, um, a water main blowout geyser in the middle of our street. Where it was shooting thirty, forty feet up in the air, and I remember my response being the first thing somebody called the i g office. we just proved we have water pipes in our streets <laughs> <laughs> so so my point is you know there you can you can take tests, you can do reports, you can do all kinds of things in check boxes, you can say that this is. Is what it is, or you can say I'm ethical because I check, I took the course and I checked my box, or you can say, um, you can say anything you want. But at the end of the day, what really matters is what you're doing when nobody's looking, and what you're bringing to the table in the right. first place, which is what is the best decision here. Divorce myself from it. Certainly, don't take sides. I was brought into the town that I work in now to be. Um, to change it to a small town governance model that was apolitical, neutral, and transparent that those were the stated reasons I was brought there um, because they had had all kinds of challenges becoming a town, and whether it 's factions or just you know uh, uh, by, uh, uh, drastically different visions and outcomes mm-hmm. of what 's going to happen what 's it going to look like and who's who 's going to prevail, uh, all those kinds of things. What the analogy I would utilize here for the digital generation is what's the most important thing to you in social media or computerization or websites or any of that? What's the most important element in all of that in modern media and modern digital worlds? And I would say the answer is a stable platform because all the rest is, um, you know, what you take, what you yeah, gather, yeah. what you share. But if you don't have a stable platform, where you have uninterrupted internet service, almost think of it as utility, where all of this exchange can happen digitally, whether from AI to fax to non-fax to whatever you're – to streaming You first videos. need a stable platform, yeah. <laughs> you, you need to have a stable platform, and that platform needs to be ubiquitous. It needs to be um, neutral. It needs to be transparent. It needs to be apolitical. Because if you don't have those infrastructural elements there, everything else doesn't matter. You
0: know, neither of us are going to argue against mandatory ethics training. Neither of us are going to argue against mandatory repeated ethics testing, et cetera. But we do – we should be honest about the process and say, does this really improve the ethics – it's, it almost reminds me of that old expression, locks are to keep honest people out. So yes. if, if if you say, okay, you're a new city commissioner, you're a new assistant city manager, you need to take this ethics training. But if that person begins the journey as an unethical player, they're going to just simply see that oh, I'll, I know the right answer, even though I'm going to do the wrong thing.
1: I. I think it's become... More difficult, especially with uh, social media, especially with the way people come into these positions uh, to understand this concept we're talking about, which is uh, that basic principle, that basic compass that you operate from, is more important than anything. Because what you're what you're being asked to do, whether you're a, a paid you know management official right. or an employee or even an elected official who don't get paid very much, um, you know we take we take the hits, they take the glory, but right. that's what they get out of it. But it's really a large ask to, to ask somebody to take their ego and take their personal agenda and interests off their shoulders and set them aside and truly operate in a place of what's good, what's best for the betterment of the community, what is the best outcome. Uh, for this set of circumstances we're being presented with and and what would truly be the best decision to make in allocating resources or making a policy decision or pursuing a program or a course of action? No, I
0: do believe, I I think it's, here's a fact, right? Most, uh, almost all elected city commissioners, council members are ethical, good people. Absolutely. Part of it has to do with, I believe the spirit of the of the average citizen is also a good ethical person, and when you have to answer to everybody in your city and you stand on the ballot against for everybody in the city, then that breeds good people, right? Because yes. everybody you have to answer to the majority of your citizens. When you say, "Hey, only a little itty bitty part of the community gets to vote on you," then other factors take hold. But as a result of the current form of city government, into most counties that we have, you end up with good electives. You end up with good managers, people in high positions who can make good decisions because that ethic, I think, from the people, from the largest number of people, flows all the way to the front to the front desk where the buck stops.
1: Think about it like: how do we view teachers? How do we view police officers? How do we view firefighters um, and other uh, medical professionals? I mean, any any. Profession where you have people in a role of trust and a role of being responsible for managing other people's assets, right? Automatically is a fiduciary situation that is perceived by the public to demand a higher standard, and so I feel it's important and incumbent upon everybody that's in the process to bring that to the table. Um, I to your statement, I think virtually everybody is honest decent yes. ethical me uh, well-meaning um trying to do the right thing but you know there's also a certain amount of the human condition that's um well because i'm this position maybe i can leverage this or maybe i can talk to you know slide this in or get this done or um and and that's important if it stays within the appropriate parameters. You know that you know how to read read the room, leverage the situations, right. maximize right. the resources that are available for for the right reasons, etc. That's good stuff.
0: You talked earlier about the bright shiny object. Are you facing any of those challenges with your own staff or your own city, where some latest social media trend is like, "Hey, we need to do this." You, you talked when we were doing the pre-interview about how you try to avoid the distractions and stay to the core mission with core values. Tell me a little. uh, Are those distractions becoming more uh, frequent? Are you seeing your staff being more distracted or other
1: Uh, cities? Categorically, I would say yes. I'm seeing it in all factors. I see it from citizens. I see it from electeds. I I certainly see it from staff members. Um, The... um, The... um, trying to think of the word well uh, the fact that we all have access to all the information all the time we become a 24 7 um, news infotainment um, information driven uh, society both digitally and in the media and in our lives uh, and then that permeates into the conversations and then uh, everybody has an idea for everything uh i it actually relates to me back to my advertising and marketing days where in the you know before all this mm-hmm. digitization it was like how do you cut through the clutter how do you you know how do you position your message to the right target audience in the right medium so that you, so it gets through versus just the 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 hundreds if not thousands of impressions and you know information that flows in oh and remember you, you
0: so when you were getting your degree what, in the 80s Early uh, 70s. Okay, so the 70s. So I was working on my master's in the 80s, and I remember hearing that the average person receives 300 advertising messages a day. Today, the low end of that number is 10 times that.
1: I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, And it has AI driving it to make sure you get the right ones in your face. Or the exact Um, wrong ones. (laughs) Exactly. exactly, No, you're getting
0: over 3,000 advertising messages a day. And what's interesting about that is the number that hasn't changed is the number 12. Was twelve. That's uh, on average the number of messages and and think new pieces of information that the average person can retain in a day. So you had twelve out of three hundred versus twelve out of three thousand as a base. Uh, so everybody you know, can kind of be in this kind of frenzy of information, but coming back saying, we should do this, we should do this, we should try it this way, we should try And that's all good, innovation's great, but I guess what you're saying is, at some point you have to have that stable platform, you have to make sure, are we still doing the basics of Are, are good we doing government?
1: the core business of governance of the community? Good and service. are we staying within the parameters and the resources that have been allocated for that purpose? Because you can always you can always want something more. You can always um, demand higher standards or higher levels of infrastructure or more um, uh, hands-on programming in the community, you, you name it, whatever it is. Um, but you have to be willing to define what that looks like, how much it costs to provide, and be willing to write the check, proverbially, to, to pay for all that.
0: Well, and when you write and- a check, so I re- recall a story, and I won't name any names or any governments, but... This city commission wanted to move the entire municipality to broadband, a very worthy goal, right? But uh, first of all, most of the denizens already had broadband; they paid for through private contracts. So, it would require the city to purchase out all those contracts and then purchase all the assets of the current broadband providers. And while it sounds like a really neat idea on the front end, it would have displaced about sixty percent of the operating budget of the government,
1: at least in the first few years. Well, to your point, if I have a and in direct competition to the business entities that's already providing that sort of society, so it's uh, it's kind of. Yeah, to your point, sense. though, is that a core function of government? Is that something
0: core should we be doing? And if we want to do it, what's the cost? Not just in terms of what's the check you got to write, but what are the other costs of things you're not doing? Are you not providing meals on wheels? Are you not helping with feeding homeless people? Are you not providing with sheltering homeless people? Are you not providing police services, fire services, road services, water services, electricity? You know, all
1: those things, it comes at a cost. Um due to the nature of our community we do not have the ability to retrofit the infrastructure that's needed within the spectrum of resources that we have. Our math equation goes out very very far in order to get to that place Um, so what that means in a government light community is that you've got to pick and choose what you prioritize and you've got to um, strategize how you get to the rest and you've got to you have to have a very robust community conversation about that and you have to have some meeting of the minds along the way of what that looks like and how you get there. And one of the things I, I promise people is that government is a is a never ending running meter. Anything you do, the longer it takes, the more expensive it costs. And so you've got this these competing forces of needing processing time and the ability of consensus and the ability of coming up with pract- uh, practicable solutions for getting things done against the perception that the meter's always running, you're paying everything you're paying without exception or without stop, and the more delay that's being either intentionally or unintentionally introduced into the process is just driving up. Um, much like inflation reduces your buying power, it drives up the cost of government in a way that your math equation gets uh, more burdened and further out to get to the same place than if you tried to focus on the efficiency of getting to a palatable solution that can be pragmatically implemented in a shorter period of time. Um, And and through all that, you have
0: to keep the wheels of government turning. So when that water main breaks... You don't have the capacity to say, well, we'll get to that next week. You got to get somebody out there that day, that minute, if if possible, uh, because all these things have to keep going. You know, it's like we went we went through it again and we're going to go through it again before the end of the year. Potential government shutdown at the federal government level. And they never really do the full shutdown. We don't ever tell the military to take a couple days off. We don't tell the ports to shut down all those things, but you you get the joke, you could never do that in local government. You could never say, well, we've come to an impasse, so we're just going to not let, when people turn on their lights, we're not going to let those lights come on for a few days. Well,
1: you know, you've heard often people say to practitioners in local government, why don't you operate more like a business? You know, why don't you run this place more like a business? Well, interestingly, in fact, we do. We probably run more like a business than most businesses. You don't have the opportunity to go bankrupt. We don't have the opportunity to go bankrupt. We don't have the opportunity to close our store and move to another community. We don't have an opportunity to say, you know what, you're really difficult customers or clients or citizens. We're no longer going to provide you with sewer service. We're going to we're going to go over to this nice community over here where they're they're all happy and happy to have us, you know and. Um, we we don't have that option. Our our footprint, our region, our corporate store, if you will, is fixed, and we we have to take whatever comes to us. I've I've had debates with some of my elected officials, like you know, here's my my Excel spreadsheet of all the things that you're supposed to be doing. Why aren't these done? And I'll I'll retort, kind of, well, the one problem with that spreadsheet is my job's not on it yeah these are all things you'd like for us to do or have done or require going through this process going through these conversations um sequencing and prioritizing and funding and implementing in a in a manageable scenario within a limited budget and then there's the call i got this morning when i walked into the office it changed everything and now we're doing this and that's nowhere on that spreadsheet right and right. you know uh, well, you it's like comparing the, the public employees. schools to
0: the to the private schools, where they say, "Oh, look at the grades." We, you know, well, great. But when you had a kid who wasn't performing, you could kick them out mm-hmm. and send them back to the public schools. Well, the public schools are like, yeah, you don't have a choice. You have to provide these services to everybody. to everybody. You have to provide all those services. You can't say, you know what, this line of whatever no longer works. Uh, works not profitable, so we're gonna we're gonna clip that off. You know, can you imagine running? It is funny because you do run government like a business. You try to be as efficient as possible. You set budgets. You hire. You fire. You inspire people to kind of do better, et
1: cetera. But no at the end of the day... Audited and scrutinized and double-guessed than anybody.
0: But you don't have the option to shut down a, a product line. we're no longer going to sell steaks. Yeah. No, no, no. You're required to do so. Jamie, this has been really helpful. Uh, I told folks it's the un-manager in the un-city. Um, speaking of the uncity, tell us something cool about Loxahatchee Groves that we don't know. Wow. Um, For those well, of you who already knew something about because I did not, I mean, I'm, I'm very familiar with Palm Beach, a number of referenda down there, a well, lot of campaigns. Uh,
1: the fact that it's um, the area was established over 100 years ago is kind of unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually had a, a settlement village. It was built at the time when Florida was um, demucking, de-swamping. Mm-hmm. Land for either uh, real estate purchases or agricultural purposes. We had some um, some early historic photos of what looked to be like full size river boats on canals, dredging canals and and working their way through these systems out there. Um, it's kind of the place where time stood still while the rest of the world progressed rapidly forward and. It's interesting because perhaps the pandemic, the whole COVID situation and whatever, has put a whole new spin and twist on people's priority and focus for rural living, for getting space, for maybe getting away from the uh, being quarantined in the 800-square-foot box in the sky. Yeah. And we've seen a a demographic shift in people relocating to rural areas, uh, to taking interest in being kind of mom-and-pop farmers, if you will, being connected with their food sources, with their with their environment, with things going on. And I think if we have a salvation in all these challenges that we have, it's that we actually could capitalize and leverage um, on this fact that we're... Um, an environmental petri dish, if you will, kind of a, an experimental uh, plot of land that has a lot of challenges but has a lot of opportunities. And we're, we're hell-bent, if I can say that, not to become just another series of zero-lot-line subdivisions. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're looking for the perfect solutions to put together the interests of agricultural, which can be all the way up to the industrial scale, uh, versus people that want to live in just rural Um, remote areas versus providing the infrastructure that's necessary for all the impacts on the on the activities that go on there and yet not just succumbing to uh, the suburbanization or urbanization that is so prevalent in south florida to everybody else are you guys going to build a wall i don't know (laughs) it's not on the list it's not on the excel spreadsheet we really don't need a wall because we have 32 miles of moats Oh, there you go. And in one of them, we have a 13-foot alligator that lives there. Well, there so, you have it. Uh, you know, no walls, moats. Mo- that's a lot of territory for him to police. But. And,
0: and that's that's the saying when you come to Loxahatchee Groves. It says, no walls, just moats. Moats. Very good. Jamie, Moats make good neighbors. Make moats make good neighbors. <laughs> thanks for being on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Folks, this is Steve Van Cor, And this has been the FCCMA Podcast. The service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. Thank you so much for being with us.